0: All right, so the dark night of the soul of having to listen to me is almost over. (laughs) See the abyss of light on the horizon. Why don't we start in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So just uh, last night after I had finished the talk and I was driving back it sort of struck me, you know, one of the themes that we've been sort of seeing connected through all of the different lectures or our different conferences has been that of the necessity of getting close. That if we are at a distance, we really are not going to be able to understand or or appreciate or weather sin in the church. But if we get close, we will be able to. We'll talk about the closest you're going to get is going into the darkness, with Christ there in the darkness with you, and actually taking on that sin and the, the desolation that other people experience. I don't think you're going to get Your hands any dirtier than doing that any sort of closeness so the person who really experiences that vicariously is the one who is going to truly be close uh, closer than anything else I think that we talked about so far and so our our last talk is I guess the the least theological in a certain sense the more most personal and it's inspired by uh, an essay that was published in 1971. 1971, after the chaos that followed after the council and all the stuff that was going on in the church, the infighting, <coughs> both Hanser Balthazar and then Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, published a book called To Say Why. T W O S A Y. Say, W-H-Y-Y. Two say why. Two essays. One was Balthazar's essay called Why I Am Still a Christian. And the other was Ratzinger's Why I Am Still in the Church. Now, the the book is long out of print. I don't know where you can find Balthazar's essay, but you can find Ratzinger's essay floating around. And in fact, I have a copy for you there. It's the longest thing that I have for you to read, and I really suggest you read it really suggest you read it. It's where the whole moon example comes from. It's where a lot of what today's talk will come from. And he notices and he writes why I'm still in the church. Why, with all the chaos that was going on at the time, why does he choose to remain in the church? And so while it is sort of very theological to a great degree, it's very personal, and it's very practical, is why he chooses to remain in the church. In the first part of the essay, he sort of notices and recognizes the great chaos that's in the church and in sort of culture. The sexual revolution, the post-Vatican II chaos, priests leaving, the rebellion against Humanae Vitae. He doesn't actually mention all these things. We know what's going on in 1971. And there are people, though, who do want to stay. And quite often they want to stay in the church for the wrong reason. They want to stay to make the church into their own image. Regardless, though, there's so many factions within the church, people fighting against each other, arguing with each other. And he says it's sort of like the Tower of Babel. All these people talking at crosshairs and nobody ever really being able to unify for a single purpose. And so there's a call to reform coming from all these different areas, but it's not true reform because it's not based on conversion. Then you have, even within the church, uh, the crisis of faith, so much confusion inside and outside. It doesn't seem that the church, which should be that beacon or that sign or that sacrament of Christ to the world, is now a sign of confusion. In fact, it is an obstacle for a lot of people as faith becomes sort of purely practical and purely political. And so that's what he sort of sets up as the situation. So why, with all this going on, would someone want to remain in the church? Let's fast forward, though, almost 50 years. Let's fast forward until today. We could say that it is so much worse. Since then, a lot of people have abandoned the church. They no longer practice. They no longer call themselves Christians or Catholics. Mass attendance is an all-time low. Particularly in Europe, even the people who go to Mass, most of them are spectators. They're not fans, they're going through the motion. We have, in some areas, at least a vocation crisis, although I think that's somewhat self-imposed. Rebellion against the teaching of the Church. People don't even care, they don't even know. 98% of people contracepting. you got bad liturgy. You have people unwilling to really delve into a true spirituality. All kinds of pablum out there. And, of course, you have the sex abuse crisis and the cover-up. And I want to be very, very clear, and I haven't really alluded to that too much when I'm talking about sin in the church, the stuff we're facing, the scandal. Yeah, it's the sin of the priest who did these horrible things, but it's also the apparent cover-up, moving the priest around. The bishops and cardinals and whoever knew certainly are implicated in that, and that is what makes a lot of people mad. But regardless of the update or not, Ratzinger still, and I'm sure he'd still say the same thing today, he gives his reasons why he chooses to remain in the church. And I want to look at them because I want to incorporate some of them. The other ones I like, but they're not necessarily my reasons. But I want to sort of give my own personal testimony. Granted, I'm going to sound a lot like Ratzinger because I agree generally with most everything he says. I mean, this is, he will one day potentially be a doctor of the church. I mean, I don't know. You can't even understand the insight this guy had. Great, great theologian. Much easier to read than John Paul II. But then again, the phone book is usually much easier to read than John Paul II. So why am I still in the church? My encouragement or the homework I tell you right now is I think we all should come up with a list. You can take from Ratzinger, you can take from me. Why do you choose to remain in the church, even knowing, and you probably knowing better than the average Catholic, the sin that is in the church? The first is this, and this is the reason that Ratzinger gives. He chooses to remain in the church. I choose to remain in the church because the church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. It's not my church. It's not our church. It is his church. In the homily I gave last weekend where I talked about the the difference between fan and spectator, how easy it is for a spectator to abandon their team whenever things start going poorly. They're really not invested. But is it possible for a fan to abandon his team? Much less likely, but it is possible. And so I gave the example that for many years I was a fan of the Houston Astros, particularly whenever Roger Clemens came back and started pitching in the mid-2000s. I watched their playoff games. They even got to go to Game 4 of the World Series. A Pretty fantastic story of how I got there. I won't tell it now. Um, Even though they lost, it was a tremendous blessing to be able to go there. But then if you remember, for baseball fans, the whole steroid scandal broke afterwards. And all of my Roger Clemens uh, rookie cards were worthless. (laughs) So anyhow, (laughs) Mary Bonds, Sammy Sosa wasn't worth anything anymore. So I was so upset, I quit watching baseball. And to a great degree, even though I know it's better now, I don't watch baseball. I was a fan who was scandalized and quit watching it. And so if a fan can leave, then why can't fans leave the church? And I totally understand them wanting to do it. The truth is, we say, well, the Astros are my team. The Saints are my team. And so but we can't apply that to the church. The church is not my team. It's not my church. It belongs to Jesus. In a certain sense, your sports team doesn't belong to you. The Dallas Cowboys are not my team. They're Jerry Jones' team. He's going to do what he wants with it. But one day, he's going to sell it if he can make him more money. Jesus is not going to sell his church. He's not going to give up on the church. It belongs to him. And so why he chooses to manage it the way he does why he chooses to make the rules and let goofballs and sinners in the church, I got no idea. But I believe it's his church and my faith is in him and him alone. That's the first reason. I mean, I can just stop right now. That's the basic reason. But number two, Ratzinger says, and I agree with this, that we do not believe or come to believe or exercise our faith alone. You hear it so many times. So it's just me and Jesus. No, it's not just you and Jesus. You need to have that personal relationship with Jesus. But what did you hear about Jesus? You heard about him from your mom and dad. You heard about him from your catechism teacher. You heard about him from the priest. If you heard about him in scripture, well, guess what? Someone wrote those scripture passages. You received the message from the messenger. You didn't baptize yourself. You didn't give yourself the Eucharist. We didn't evangelize ourselves. Coming to believe in Christ and faith is not some philosophical endeavor. We may have some idea that God exists. But ultimately, we need to be evangelized. So it means all of a sudden, faith and becoming a Christian implies relationship. The relationship of someone who baptizes me, someone who evangelizes me, someone who accompanies me, someone who mentors me. It's the reality and then even when we in the church, we believe it's we're members of the body of Christ. The radical individualism of the United States is simple. the West doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mesh with Christianity. Yeah, you can be your own self, but the fact of the matter is, we believe as a member of the body of Christ. In his introduction to Christianity, Ratzinger gives this sort of brilliant analysis because he's going over the creed. And he says that when the creed first started, was through the baptismal liturgies. And just like today, you know, when you go to uh, your baptism, what happens is the priest asks questions. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the people respond. He says says that the deep truth there, the faith is a dialogue. It's given. You say yes and you receive it. And you speak the word back. And so the fact that there are two people expressing the creed, or one and a crowd expressing the creed, shows you don't believe alone. You don't receive it alone. We need each other. We're members of the body of Christ. And see it all the time, and I tell the college students I work with, the number one thing for a college student maintaining their faith through college, suppose like 80% of Catholic college students leave the faith by the time they leave, without a doubt, it's not prayer, it's not going to Mass, it is having friends who share the faith, a community to support them. Without that, your faith is going to die. It's going to die. And so even I think it's true. And otherwise, if you try to go it alone, even after college, chances are you're going to fail. We need others. We need to be loved. We need to be supported. We need to be encouraged. We need fraternal correction. We need community. And so the church provides that. You don't have Jesus without the church. You don't have the head without the body. Make sense? sense? Number two. Number three. Now, this is my own thing. I believe that Jesus promised infallibility. that The church, the apostles would not lead us into error. But he never promised impeccability. He never promised impeccability. He never said, oh, there's not going to be any sin in the church. Everybody's going to be holy, particularly our leaders. Maybe this is me being a realist. So let's look at it. Even the terrible sins and scandals and horrors in the church over 2,000 years, let's do a percentage compared to Jesus. So here's Jesus, and he's got his pope denies knowing him three times, and is constantly putting his foot in his mouth and calls him Satan, Judas, the one who was carrying the money, stole from him and ended up betraying him, getting him killed. And everyone left him besides John. Who's the mathematician? That's a 1 in 12. That's a pretty bad percentage. No matter how bad we are, we're doing better than Jesus. But I think there's something serious to understand there. There's going to be failure. There's going to be sin. And there's going to be really, really big sin. And it's not good, and it's not right. And we should be holier and striving for holier. But for us to get scandalized and offended by that means we're sort of like the Pharisees. We're sort of like the Pharisees. And again, as a priest, and and I think priests know it better than anybody else, I know what people are capable of. I understand human weakness. I've seen some pretty evil stuff. Not making excuses for it. But this is part of who we are. This is part of humanity. This is part of reality. And I also know the history of scandal in the church and sin. You think that you think the bishops and priests are bad now? <laughs> Go back to the Middle Ages. Go back to the Renaissance. I mean, it makes these guys look like Boy Scouts. But yet we're all offended. And again, we should, be, we should expect clergy and religious to act better. I'm not denying that at all. And particularly when it comes to cover-up or the abuse of minors. I'm not denying that at all. But what are you gonna do? You're gonna leave the church and find some perfect church where there's no sin, where all the leaders and members are holy. When you find that, come back to me. Please come back to me. And so I maybe this is me being a realist. I just I just know history. I know what it's like. I'm not making excuses for what's going on, but this is the reality of the human condition. Number four. And this is one that Ratzinger proposes, but I agree with him. And he actually has another essay that deals just with this fact. Alongside the sin of the scandals, you could write a whole book on the scandals of the popes and the church and the Inquisition and whatever you want to write about, the Crusades. There's also a great history of goodness, charity, and holiness. There, There are two chapters in the book. It's easy to focus just on one. Oh, look at all the bad stuff. What about the good stuff? And he names a lot of them. In 217, a slave became pope. It's Calixtus, isn't it? Yeah. A slave became pope. Let's talk about the dignity of the human person. When the the whole empire was collapsing as a result of the the influx of the barbarians, St. Benedict gathered people around and saved culture. In the Middle Ages, when there was so much corruption and power, Francis's ministry to the poor that still bears fruit today. Dominic in the universities, the great theologians. You think of throughout history then the the, the rise of teaching orders and and hospital orders. St. Joseph Calasanzio, we celebrated just a few weeks ago, was the founder of public schools. Think of all the hospitals that run by religious orders and sisters that care for the poor during these times of great sickness and plague. In the time of Jansenism. What happens? Saint Therese comes up and teaches us about God's mercy. In the 20th century, look at the saints. So much death and destruction. You got John Paul II. You got Maximilian Kolbe. You got Mother Teresa. Let's go down the list of people who were great witnesses. And guess what? They're still saints today. We may not see them, we may not know them, but they're going to rise up. The Lord never abandons the church to sin. The weed and the wheats are, are, are the weeds and the wheat are gonna to have to coexist. And what happens, we focus on one and we forget about the other. It's simply not fair, it's simply not just. There's also a dark side to the moon, but there's also a light side. Now, granted, I'm a guy, I'm usually with usually the glasses half empty. I understand that. That's my normal nature. But I realize that there's a lot of good stuff that goes on, and I see it in the church today. But nobody focuses on that. I guess because it doesn't, get, it doesn't make the news. Number five, and this is something that Ratzinger's talked about elsewhere, but he does mention in his essay. One of the reasons that I stay in the church is that the church over 2,000 years has produced a lot of beautiful things. A lot of art a lot of music, a lot of magnificent architecture that has added a lot to culture, to humanity, to the world. I love to tell the story. I I was in Rome for five years, and my sort of apostolate was taking people through tours through St. Peter's Basilica. And over the five years I was there, I took, I'm sure, a couple of thousand people through, giving tours instead of going to class most of the time. And if you've ever been to St. Peter's in Rome, you, know, you, can, you can look at all the books, or watch all the TV shows. It doesn't do it justice. And my, one of the things I enjoyed so much, I'm taking a tour group a little bit later on this year, a pilgrimage group, and I can't wait to do it again. You sort of explain everything on the outside, and the arms, and the columns, and the, and the great obelisk, and then you sort of bring people inside, and then you kind of make them wait. And then watching, he says, I want you to go inside. I'm not going to say anything for a good five minutes. I want you to just take it in. And the amount of people that I saw begin crying when they walk into St. Peter's, just overwhelmed by the size, the majesty, and the beautiful, the beauty of it. And then you take them through. I've seen a number of people of my years convert as a result of that. Now, this is just one example. But think of all the art and the beauty that has taught us so much a church that is rotten to the core cannot produce such art and beauty. And in fact, quite often, the most beautiful things come whenever things are the worst, whenever there's so much ugliness in the world. Now, of course, along with that, i I'd go through with people, and I remember one time I was walking back from dinner, and this young American kid came to me, and he points at point St. Peter's, it was all lit up at night. It was probably late. We probably were drinking some wine or something, I don't know. Uh, and he says, look at this, Father, in this, this big church, all this money. Couldn't have been better used to, to, to give to the poor. And I said, well, someone said that about 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and I said, I, I told him that. I said, I didn't tell him who, but, you know. And I said, yeah, that, that, we've heard that before, but what did Jesus say? She's done something beautiful for me. This is beautiful. And I said, yeah, it's big and it's grandiose, but you know what, it's open all day. And so it's rainy and cold. Guess who goes into St. Peter's? The homeless. They have a place to get out of the rain. but They also get to enjoy the beauty of it. They get to pray. They get to have some peace. There's nobody so quick to judge. Something beautiful, whether it be a structure or a work of art or some music, can give hope. Can, can, and God reveals Himself. You know, we've heard this so often. You know, Ratzinger says it you're not going to convert people with reason today. People don't use their reason. But the thing that it is will convert people is, is beauty. It's a different type of knowledge that speaks to the heart. Number six, though, is the one that I think is probably my favorite. And and, and I'm not going to read the section to you, but you can read it yourself. He says, you know, this might be kind of a subjective thing. One of the reasons I'm still in the church is because there are a lot of really good, holy, joyful people in it. The church still can produce these people. And, And I'm reducing his argument pretty simply. I like to be around them. And the same thing with me. They inspire me. They give me hope. I enjoy being in their presence. And so uh, to leave the church would mean to leave those those people. You know, I tell you, I get to work with young people all the time. Sometimes I do want to strangle them. (laughs) Or certain of them. But most of the time I enjoy it because I have tremendous hope. I get to work with these really wonderful people. These young people who I love tremendously and who have loved me and I think have made a change in my heart. And so just like the people that you know in the church, whether it be young or old, or even Father Champagne, you know? <laughs> Maybe not beautiful, but it, <laughs> the heart. This is the beauty of the heart. We all know people like that. And so it's the individual lives that are changed, the stories that we can tell, the friendships that we make, the, the, the pilgrimage of life that we go on. We meet some pretty astounding, wonderful people that give us joy. Now, granted, they come in and out of our lives, and that's just how life goes. But we can all say that we know people in the church that have changed our lives for the better, and changed a lot of other people's lives that brought joy and happiness. Often, they're what we wish we could be. We see that. I wish I could be like that. I wish, I, and, and so it gives me the to strive for. That's a very legitimate and good reason to stay in the church, because there is still good and holiness. Number seven is my own answer, my own response. And it comes from the gospel from a few weeks ago. The end of, this is sort of like the height when everything was, the bishop was, had us read the letter and all this stuff was going on the scandal. Remember, this the end of John 6. A lot of the disciples hear what Jesus says, you're going to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. They were scandalized. Why? Because Jesus is telling them to break one of the, the integral commandments of the Old Testament. You do not consume blood. It's a punishment by death. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to die, but you're going to actually have life. Too hard of a teaching, they left. And what did Jesus do? He turns to the apostles and said, are you going to leave me too? And what is Peter's response? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And for me, that's the same thing. I don't leave because I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I think it's very reasonable to believe that he rose from the dead. And I certainly believe that he founded the church. And so, yeah, it's messed up. Yeah, they sin in it. Yeah, they're, it can often seem like the whore instead of the virgin. But where am I going to go? Like I said before, wh- where's the church that's going to be holy? Where everybody's a saint. Please show it to me. It's the church that Christ founded. Where am I going to go? What else am I going to do? And Maybe that's a simplistic answer, but I think it's the one. Lord, to whom should we go? Do you think the apostles really understood the Eucharist? No. But they said, we don't understand this, but we believe you. We know you. That's the key. If you're going to believe the message, you got to know the messenger. And they knew who Jesus was. They knew, maybe not fully, but that at least that he had the words of everlasting life. And so if he said it was true, it was true. And so that's why I choose to remain. Tied to that, number eight, I'm, I stay because I believe in the Eucharist. I mean, again, maybe this is pretty simplistic. I believe Christ's true presence there, it's an act of faith. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. It seems crazy. But I don't think Jesus was speaking symbolically. Too much evidence from the early church, the Eucharistic miracles, all that kind of stuff. And a real, a real sign, no matter how bad things get, Jesus is still with us. He's still there. He still remains. He's sitting there in the tabernacle. So, I mean, I can get theological about it, the truth is, I'm not going to give up the Eucharist. You know, maybe I could go to another church where I could they have music that makes me feel better, or they have better coffee, or whatever, or a light show. But I'm not going to give up the Eucharist. I mean, and I understand. Look, I'll tell you one of the best things about being a priest. I'm not going to listen to anybody else's preaching. It's true. I, you know... Sometimes i got to listen to Champlain's preaching, but it's not too bad. I don't have to generally deal with other people's terrible liturgies. I just don't. But I know a lot of people do. I'd want to leave the church, too, probably, if I had to listen to this rambling nonsense and this saccharine liturgy. I can understand it. It's boring, it's, and it's sad. But if we do what we're supposed to be doing, people will come. We give them that sense of the sacred, even though they may not understand it. So I don't care about those other things. I understand some people, maybe they don't really believe in the Eucharist, but I'm not going to go anywhere. I believe the priesthood is in the church. I believe the Eucharist is real, and I'm not going to really get it anywhere else. Number nine, and this is really mine. I I, I choose to stay in the church because I'm just stubborn and (laughs) hard-headed. I'm not going to give up. I mean, I call it tenacity, call it perseverance. I just think I'm hard-headed. Oh, yeah, maybe things look bad. I know things have looked worse in the, the past, but I'm not going to abandon ship. I'm going to keep sticking it out, even though when it looks like, hey, I mean, that's me in general. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, even though, you know, I look like I'm stupid. I like to do crossword puzzles. And I will sit and do my crossword puzzle until two o'clock in the morning until I figure it out. <laughs> so if I'm going to be that tenacious when it comes to a stupid crossword puzzle, I'm going to do it the same when it comes to the church. Maybe it's pride, possibly. but I'm not going to let the church sink. Not that the church would sink. I mean she pro- Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against it. but I'm not going to abandon the church. Maybe we need more stubborn people. maybe what we need, more hard-headed people. And then ten, and finally, and this, I guess, goes into a larger discussion, I remain because I love the church. I love it in its beauty, in its imperfection, in the teachings, and the traditions, and the humanity. I love it all, the good and the bad. And again, this is like with someone else. Uh, People whom I love, I know their strengths and weaknesses. They surely know my strengths and weaknesses. I don't say, "Oh, they got more bad. You got too much bad. I'm giving up on you." Oh, I'm not going to give up. And so that's kind of the last point that Ratzinger makes in the essay that you'll be able to read. And and he sort of makes this remark at the conclusion, is that you know, isn't love the opposite of criticism? You know. Here everybody wants to criticize the church, but if you love the church, you're not going to criticize the church. And he says, that's not the case. He says, real love is neither static nor uncritical. If there is any possibility at all of changing another human being for the better, then it is only by loving him and by slowly helping him to change from what he is into what he can be, should it be any different with the church. We really... We realize things have got to change. I'm not denying that. We can't have bishops covering up. We can't have priests chasing after teenage boys. Not not a good thing at all. But are we going to give up? Are we just going to sit here and be critical? Lots of people have to criticize all the time. Fine, be critical, but, but love. And realize the changes that to come slowly. He continues, just look at recent history in the liturgical and theological renewal during the first half of the 20th century, the stuff that led up to Vatican II, a real reform developed that brought about positive change that was possible only because there were watchful individuals who, with the gift of discernment, loved the church critically and were willing to suffer for her. De to name one, we can go down the list of some other ones. If nothing succeeds anymore today, maybe it is because all of us are all too intent on merely proving ourselves right, that seems to be half of the people on Twitter and, and Facebook. Staying in a church that we actually have to make first in order for her to be worth staying in is just not worthwhile. That's going back to what he's going to talk about in the essay about it being our church. If we've got to make it worthwhile, if we got to fashion it into our image, it's not worth it. It is self-contradictory. Remaining in the church because she is worthy of remaining because she is worth loving and transforming ever anew through love so that she transcends herself and becomes more fully herself. This is the path that the responsibility of faith shows us even today. That's, that's beautiful stuff. That's powerful words. I remain in the church because I love the church, and I know the church is not perfect. It's like I know I'm not perfect. I know you're not perfect. And I'm not here to promote my own agenda of what I think the church should look like, or I don't have a timeline for it to change, and I can sit here and be critical, and be angry, and be negative, and demand certain things, and I'm not saying that maybe it's not a good idea, is it going to really get us anywhere? Oh, I want to change, I'm going to do it by loving. In the same way, if I want one of you to change, I can get in your face and yell at you, you better change, you better stop it, and maybe you'll convert, but really it's, hey, listen, that's not the best behavior. Let's cut that out. But I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to love you. And just like we talked about, that loving another person and showing their merciful love will lead to change much more quickly and much more effectively than condemning and criticizing and being angry and yelling at people. It simply doesn't work much anymore today. And so I remain in the church because I love the church. I still think things should change. I don't know how. I don't know what should happen, but. We, love and a critical attitude can go together. Because if they don't, if you love without recognizing the imperfections, then you're naive. And if you're critical without loving, then you are a jerk. Or you can at least become a jerk. You've got to have both of them together. And I think that is the most important reason that I, and I think anyone should remain in the church. So in conclusion, I mean, not only conclusion for this, I really do encourage you, please, come up with your own reasons. You know, because the thing is, is people are going to come to you. I want to leave the church. And you say, let me tell you why I stay in the church. And it could be a personal reason. It could be something theological. It could be something philosophical. I don't know. But they're your own reasons. be willing to profess it and willing to back it up. So, you know, even though I've hoped to sort of talk about generally sin in the church, and how we learn to live with it, to reconcile ourselves to it, to face it, of course we're speaking of the idea of the scandal and the dark clouds amassing. And I think people who even criticize the church from within, not from without, and, and want to eradicate sin and all the bad bishops and all the bad cardinals and all that kind of stuff, deep down, if we're going to be positive, we we'll want to see a holy, good, and noble church to see who she's supposed to be. So you know what? We can enact all the reforms we want. There can be a synod for bishops in the church. We can dispose, depose bishops and cardinals. We can impose penances. We can clean up the clergy. We can mandate safe environment programs and all these things. And I'm not saying any of this is bad. Some of it is probably good and very necessary. But from the history of the church, and you can study it, that is not where reform, true reform comes from. You can, you can enact all the laws and the rules and all the stuff from the top, but unless there is individual conversion at the bottom, none of it really matters. And all the different reforms from the Council of Trent or the Council of Florence or whatever you want or Vatican II, they're just words. It takes individual people to change their lives to have that conversion for true reform to happen. Because otherwise, you know, reform just becomes, let's change the structure, let's rearrange things. The real reform, and this is something that Ratzinger writes about over and over and over again, has got to come on the personal level. So it's got to be a deeper interior conversion, a turning away from sin, and a turning towards Christ. The true reform is a reform of holiness. Admitting our own weakness, admitting our own sinfulness, knowing that, but at least practicing that art of failure, and having goodwill, and trying, and trudging forward. And so, if we, the best way to deal with sin, practically for all of us, what can we do? I'm not proposing what the Pope can do. I'm not proposing what the Cardinals can do. I'm not proposing what the Episcopal Conferences can do. What can we do? Lay people, priests, and religious. I'm not saying that bishops and cardinals are separate from us. But the fact of the matter is we can't dictate those terms. We can say what we like to see done, but what are we in control of? We're in control of our own lives. And so the real reform is going to start at the bottom by us turning away from sin and allowing ourselves to be received of the merciful love of the Father. And as we talked about, if we do receive that, if we know the Lord's love, if our lives are converted, then guess what? That joy and that truth and the love of the gospel, we're going to spread to others. It's implied in the message of Jesus. You just can't say, Oh, my life's changed. Let me go sit on the couch and watch television. You're going to want to spread it to others because it's good news. Hey, I got some good news to share with you. But not just in what you say, but in what you do. Whoa, I want what that person has. That person's life is different. What, what what made the change? That's what draws people, and therefore, others are brought into that encounter with the Father through our own, and Jesus through our own merciful love. So it's got to start with individual conversion. What happens is, then the ripple effect comes. And it could take years, decades, even centuries Trust me, with the true reform or whatever springtime that John Paul II wanted, our participation in the springtime of the church is we are going to be the fertilizer for the flowers. All right? (laughs) Because we're all going to be dead. (laughs) Maybe we'll see some old buds blossoming, but that's going to be probably our role in it. But again, our own lives, our own death to self, our own whatever, will begin to spread at the local level. You can call it subsidiarity. You can call it what Rod Dreher, if you've read his stuff, Rod the Benedict Option, you call it that. Quit worrying about Rome. Quit worrying about the USCCB. Quit writing angry letters to your own bishop. He, trust me, he's already heard it. <laughs> hey, nothing you're going to tell the bishop that either A, he has not heard before, or B, he, he's not going to know. And I can tell you, I'm not saying you shouldn't write or call or do whatever you want to do. but Threatening them? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to threaten my bishop. You threaten me and say, I'm going to withhold my money. I'm going to throw away. Fine, see you later. That's not how we work. And then you're going to threaten me. Mo- you're going to withhold money. And you're going to threaten me and hold it over my head. Well, guess who's going to suffer? The poor, the people in the parish, you know, I, I just I'm kind of tired of hearing that. I'm not saying that we're not angry, but what are some of the better ways we can do things? Yes, the bishop's got to change. Yeah, not necessarily our bishop, but the, the, there's got to be a lot of change, and some of us may be called to be involved in it. But what we can do is create communities of life and love and mercy, where we work to support each other and to to, to move away from sin. And I think the community of Jesus crucified is doing it. The Benedict option was that Roger, Roger took uh, this idea of you know, St. Benedict um, kind of living in a small community when the whole civilization collapsed. He's not saying that we should retreat, but it's a way that we can support each other to get through the dark times together so that we're not alone that. It's subsidiarity. Quit worrying about all that other stuff. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't read the news. I'm not saying you shouldn't be, pay attention and be informed. I think Catholics need to be informed today. But change what you can. And we can change on a local level. And then as I've said earlier, and I'm going to say it again, if priests are pitted against lay people and lay people are pitted against religious, it's never going to work. I was talking to a friend of mine in a big archdiocese, and the priests are running scared over there. And this is not like Lafayette. It's like they don't want to go to anyone's house. They don't want to talk to anybody because they're afraid that they're going to get accused of something. And they're so isolated. I mean, it's really, really, really sad. And so I'm not saying it's for the, the, oh, like the poor priest. I'm not saying that at all. But we all got to work together. And there's got to be a certain vulnerability. And like I said before, don't put the priest on the pedestal. If you put Father Champagne on the pestle, you might—I might be able to see him eye to eye. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'd have to smell his beard. So. <laughs> but it, it, it's true, and the same thing, you know. And it's beautiful to say, "Hey, like, everybody gets along. We're all supporting each other." I'm not saying there should be boundaries. We got to figure it all out ourselves. But there's got to be we got to go through it together. If we're going to see things change, if we're going to see a hope, it's got to be that mutual vulnerability. We've got, cannot going it alone. And so I think y'all should really thank the Lord for the seed that Father Fry planted and the way it grows to fruition. Y'all may never have 10,000 members. It may only be 40, but guess what? You're doing it together. Priests, religious, lay people, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what it's got to be. can no longer alienate priests. Religious sisters can't decide to go hide because everything is crazy. We all maintain our own identities. but There's got to be an intermeshing. There's got to be a working together. And so I'll close with, with uh, the story from Luke's Gospel, I believe. It's the road to Emmaus. I've always found a lot of beauty in that. You know, the two apostles, they are leaving, disciples are leaving Jerusalem. And you know, it's the, the day of the, the resurrection Easter Sunday. And they meet Jesus, even though they can't recognize Jesus. But the three of them walking together. They're not by themselves. They're in community with each other. And of course, they say, did you hear about the crazy things that happened? And then Jesus says no. And then they begin the whole discussion. And they finally ended up in Emmaus. And then Jesus reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. We can get into all kinds of Eucharistic theology or whatever. Here's the key. They were walking in the evening. And guess what? When they got to Emmaus, it was dark. They were walking into the darkness. They had questions. They were confused. They didn't understand what was going on. They had a community going into the darkness together. But at the end, what happens? Christ reveals himself. So Christ, you could say, is symbolic of the priest. The disciples are symbolic of lay people. One was the wife of Clopas. Mary of Clopas is a religious sister. I have no idea. Whatever symbolism you want. I'm sure some church father could tell you. You know, Origen probably wrote about that. I have no idea. <laughs> but I think it's a good symbol of what we're doing. We're not, we're not hiding out. We're journeying together, and we're going into the darkness. And we don't know what to expect. We all got to be there together. And sometimes we're not going to recognize Jesus. It's going to take that act of faith. It's going to seem like it doesn't make any sense. But if we respond to the Spirit, our hearts will burn within us and we'll be able to make it to our destination. No idea what the journey holds, but you can't go it alone. We've got to be able to go it together. That's how we deal with sin in the church. That's how we find some hope in the resurrection and that's how we conform ourselves to christ crucified but also to the risen christ let's close with the glory be glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as, as, was, as was in the beginning day, is and now and ever shall be, be or we're without end right. amen, amen. In the father and the son of the holy spirit amen, amen.